0: House progressives retract letter to Biden calling for talks with Russia. Representative Jayapal blamed the release of the letter on her staff. What signals does this send? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia, Professor Nikolai Petro. Professor Petro, as always, welcome back. Thank you. Nice. Nice to be with you again. So the letter was signed by 30 lawmakers and was led by Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. In a statement, she said the letter was drafted several months ago and blamed its release on her staff. Uh, Professor Petro, uh, well, I'm not even going to comment. I'll I'll let you your, your thoughts, sir.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Um,
2: well, I think the next paragraph in Politico said that they had their own sources, which, which essentially said that, that the, they had to come up with an excuse to retract the letter, and uh, they simply threw the staff under the bus for this, uh, for this political gaffe. It simply indicates, uh, together with um, the recent pledge by Nancy Pelosi to add another 50-odd billion dollars of U.S. assistance to Ukraine, putting the total at over $110 billion, that there really is no political constituency in the United States uh, for peace for peace in Ukraine or peace with Russia. And um, the people who are going to have to suffer the
1: most for this are the Ukrainians themselves. Dr. Petro, I think there's something else we can get from this. You know, I think this arose from a couple of things. There were some videos going out a week ago of AOC at an event, and she was getting shouted down and heckled by by peace activists. I think there's also, we're starting to see um, in the U.S. and certainly in uh, the form of protests in France, that even though the political ruling elite have no desire to back down off this, that the heat is starting to come to, to arise from people in in the uh, you know from the from people from the electorate. Um, even though they are, they're they're not getting some reaction the, the the reaction that they want, I think if this pressure continues, there will at some point have to be a reaction politically, your thoughts? Theoretically, yes, but in
2: practice, how do you convince a particular congressman in the United States that their unpopularity is due to their policy on Ukraine? Um, I think that they're likely to give it a lot of other uh, reasons they're They're likely to think of a lot of other reasons, and um at least for Democrats they're likely to follow the Biden line that uh, everything that's happening is putin's fault and even this letter by the way the the retraction was very peculiarly worded it was worded not as being the wrong idea, but that it came too close to what a republican a congressman was saying, at the same time. So I really don't know uh, how to realize this pent-up frustration, which indeed may exist in the American public, with um, the amount of aid being provided and and the interminable prospect of war with Russia over Ukraine. But how does one connect their political faith to that one issue when there are so many other issues that Congress will be distracted by?
0: Let me let me come at it this way. Uh, So there's a Quincy Institute poll that shows 57 percent of likely voters support U.S. pursuing diplomatic negotiations as soon as possible to end the war. And 47 percent said they only support the continuation of military aid if the U.S. is involved in ongoing diplomacy. So if I were – and we also know now that the Republicans are saying put us in and we'll cut funding. Now, we don't know what that actually means. But if I were advising a candidate, looking at those numbers, I would tie the aid – to Ukraine to problems domestically. That we don't have money for clean drinking water in Jackson, Mississippi and we don't have money for clean drinking water in um, Michigan uh, because the money is going elsewhere. And I could find other examples to that. So that's what I would do if I were advising a political candidate. Your your thoughts, sir? And
2: yet uh, (laughs) one of the things that I think you learn uh, very quickly in the study of political science is that the fact that there's a better alternative use for public funding doesn't at all mean that it's going to be used that way. There's what what war has ever been stopped by uh, the need for these funds uh, or their better use uh, on anything else. No one literally no one argues that war is beneficial and uh, you know is a good use of money and yet that hasn't ever led to uh, a change in strategy in any country uh, so I think there's a real disconnect here and it's the fault it's a reflection of the imperfection
1: of our democratic processes hmm. that's about all I can say on that okay OK. Um, and I think you're being charitable to refer to the U.S. government as, as having democratic processes at <laughs> well, this point. But, you know, what the heck? Uh, here's an important article. Russia raises dirty bomb allegations at UN Security Council. I think somebody must have taken it seriously because the IAEA is going to inspect two sites in Ukraine where Russia claims work is being done to build a dirty bomb. The, now, the U.S. and the West say we completely reject it, but... The IAe is going. I think somebody has some level of concerns. Your thought on the uh, the Dirty Mom allegations, Dr. Petro?
2: Yeah, I think um, there's many ways uh, this could be also perceived as a strategy. <clears throat> In other words, uh, I don't think uh, Russia wants uh, – it would obviously be a humanitarian catastrophe of enormous proportions to blow up uh, the dam. But uh, – and so, I should say, then um, simply raising the concern to some extent makes the act itself less likely. So um, that could be the – intended uh, strategy in this case. Um, Sometimes it's not, uh, it's a shadow game, essentially, that you could actually prevent uh, a certain type of attack by indicating its possibility and your awareness of it. And that uh, dissuades your opponent from undertaking it. So that's how I hope it's being done in in that context and that it in, and that it does, in fact, make such an event less likely.
0: The pope appeals to politicians to avert threat of nuclear war in Ukraine. Pope Francis, comparing the current world situation to the Cuban Missile Crisis on Tuesday, led leaders of world religions in a peace appeal. I I, I find this interesting particularly as Joe Biden is Catholic and Joe Biden has no problem uh, speaking about his his Catholicism uh, when it fits his uh, political purpose. But balancing that against what I'll call the the John Kennedy problem of uh, people being concerned that a Catholic president uh, feels uh, compelled to serve two masters.
2: Oh, I don't think that's much of a concern today in our secularized society. I don't think Catholic politicians um, actually address their faith in those terms or see it as a limitation on their pursuit of the national interest, as they interpret it, they don't subordinate the national interest to their moral um, uh their moral outlook, but rather more likely it seems to me the other way around, because that that is the political platform uh that they that they run on that they will defend they will protect and defend the constitution, not the bible so uh I think I think we've moved far, far past that—the Kennedy era, in that sense—and become simply uh, overwhelmingly uh, a secular uh, uh, political community.
0: What about the Pope's appeal to politicians? Do you think that that's going to have that's going to have any impact?
2: Not in not in practical terms. Uh, He's understood to be a moral authority. But, um, you know, if, if, if morality were the criteria...
0: Um, <laughs> we wouldn't be in this mess in the first
2: place. Right, we wouldn't be <laughs> here in the first place. And, and that's something that can be uh, laid at the feet of, of, of every politician, uh, foreign and domestic. So um, it's valuable, it's good. Uh, I, I especially, I think it's valuable that the Pope is uh, unlike... Many political leaders around the world and even some religious leaders avoiding taking sides and really seeing this as a common human tragedy that involves Russians and Ukrainians uh, uh, first and foremost, and then other nations uh, around that. But, you know, uh,
1: unfortunately, he doesn't have enough divisions, as Stalin said, to make a difference. (laughs) Dr. Petro House uh, Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, Tuesday um, spoke at the Parliamentary Summit of the International Crimea Platform in Croatia, a forum that was set up to discuss expelling Russia from the Crimean Peninsula. Here's the issue. We have Regis Tremblay. He's an American. He lives in Crimea. He reports to us weekly, sometimes more than one time a week, a week what's going on in Crimea. And it is clear the Crimean people do not want to go back to Ukraine. They don't want out of Russia. They're fine with way that, where, where they are. The majority of the people there are Russian-speaking. There's a disconnect between the U.S. and the NATO policy saying Russia must leave Crimea and the Crimean people who are saying uh, that's not what we want. Your thoughts?
2: Um, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know how it'll work out, but uh, the current— uh, policy, the, the declared policy of the Ukrainian government, is to liberate all of Ukraine, including Crimea and eastern Donbass, which have not been under their control for, for the past eight years. And um, with, again, th- there's a complete disconnect between reality uh, and what is even feasible for uh, Ukraine to accomplish with, I think, any amount of, of Western assistance, or, or even for that matter, with the direct uh, NATO military involvement, which I think is completely implausible, but even if one could imagine it, it would not end the civil war in Ukraine. It would prolong it indefinitely if uh, Crimea itself were attacked this time by Ukraine.
0: Professor Nikolai Petro, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Warmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. The Libertarian Institute has a piece entitled, State Department Threatens to Use Nuclear Weapons Against North Korea. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman said the U.S. would be willing to deploy nuclear weapons against North Korea under certain conditions. During her recent trip to South Korea, Vice President Kamala Harris called for the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher and analyst, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you.
3: Pleasure to be with you.
0: So Sherman says Washington, quote, will use the full range of U.S. defense capabilities to defend our allies, including nuclear, conventional, and missile defense capabilities, end quote. She said this during a meeting with South Korean and Japanese officials. This threat to use the bomb against North Korea comes after Vice President Harris was in South Korea and demanded Pyongyang abandon its nuclear arsenal, and the government led by Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un has consistently maintained that its nuclear forces are a deterrent against U.S.-led military action. KJ, this sounds A lot like what Secretary Blinken said on August 1st, speaking at the 10th Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference at the U.N. As long as nuclear weapons exist, the fundamental role of U.S. nuclear weapons will be to deter nuclear attacks on the United States, our allies and partners. The U.S. would only consider the use of nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances to defend vital interests of the United States, its allies and partners. This, to me, sounds like a very consistent mindset between Blinken and um, Wendy Sherman. And how long will it be before we start hearing that North Korea has threatened to use nuclear weapons against the United States?
4: Yes. I mean, this is a uh, you know, terrible escalation in rhetoric. I mean, to go to North Korea, as uh, Vice President Harris did, and to demand their de- denuclearization, uh, that's a non-starter. Um, you know, the North Koreans have seen what happened to Libya. The U.S. is offering absolutely nothing. North Koreans offered very, very clear plan for they said. Normalize relations with us. Have diplomatic relations. Sign a peace treaty so we can have an enduring peace uh, on the peninsula. And then let's talk about total uh, denuclearization. They mapped this out very clearly, and Trump was, it was within inches of signing an agreement to do this until he was sabotaged by his own, uh, you know, uh, uh, people, uh, you know, working uh, for, you know, the Hawks. And so, you know, that horse has left the barn. Denuclearization is not possible for North Korea, it, precisely for the reasons that the U.S., uh, you know, the kind of threats that the U.S. is making against it. North Korea has come out with a declaratory policy that says that we are a de facto nuclear state. Get used to it. Uh, And as for uh, North Korean nuclear threats, the only threat they have is the threat to deter. In particular, the U.S. has a plan in South Korea's plan, Korea Massive Punishment and Retaliation Plan, as well as our Plan 5015, which is about decapitation of the North Korean leadership and its command and control. and under those circumstances, North Korea's response is to defuse its uh, nuclear arsenal so that if there is uh, a decapitation strike, they can still have a dead man switch which will retaliate uh, uh, with nuclear forces and they see that as an essential part of their deterrent strategy. What the United States is saying, uh, in, in, in its simplest terms, is that uh, you cannot deter, you cannot have nuclear deterrence against us. And I think that is extraordinarily foolish and escalatory, uh, and I can't imagine that North Koreans will take this well. Uh, I think there will be more escalation, uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, I think all bets are off after that.
1: Well, you know, the thing about it is this. North Korea, for starters, and South Korea, it would be like, hey, you know what? I think Washington, D.C. is going to nuke Arlington. They're side by side. It is not plausible to argue that North Korea is going to wake up one day and nuke basically themselves if the wind's blowing the wrong way. Even if it isn't, there gets significant fallout. fallout. So it would be nuclear suicide in the first place. But the U.S. injects itself into this conversation, does um, uh, military activities on North Korea's border in which they're um, practicing attacking North Korea and then makes the argument that North Korea is, uh, is, is mad men and they are um, paranoid. And as I see it, North Korea and South Korea could work this out. It is the United mm-hmm. States that is the destabilizing force in North Korea and to be quite frank, throughout Asia and the world. You're absolutely correct. If North Korea and South Korea
4: were left to their own devices, they would work this out uh, in a New York uh, minute. Uh, I mean, it's the U.S. which wants this continued hostility against North Korea, because North Korea has always sued for peace. They've asked for peace over and over and over again since 1953. The U.S. has always Rebuff them. But the U.S. wants this escalated state of tension and hostility because that allows it, among other things, its military-industrial complex to, you know, uh, maintain its um, military Keynesianism, which is what happened starting 1950 and up until the present moment. The Korean War was essentially the creation of the military-industrial complex as a key element of the U.S. economy. But more than that, uh, tension or escalation with North Korea allows the U.S. to maintain troops, forces, and to use North Korea as a stalking horse to contain China, which is what it is really about. North Korea is inconsequential in the larger geopolitical uh, picture, except for how it is used as a stalking horse and a pretext for the U.S. to escalate in the Pacific against, uh, against China.
0: South China Morning Post has a piece, Beijing's ta- Taiwan timetable will not be rushed by U.S. And increasingly pessimistic Washington is predicting a mainland attack on the island as soon as this year, but Chinese observers dismiss the claim. Beijing will stick to its own timetable on Taiwan, regardless of increasing pessimism in Washington about a possible attack. This is according to Chinese analysts. And I don't think that that's any great uh, revelation, seeing as I haven't read or heard anything from anybody in China saying we're going into Taiwan sometime soon. KJ.
4: Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, Mao said that reunification uh, or reabsorption of Taiwan Island, you know, would take a century. Uh, So, I mean, they're biding their time, taking their time. They want a peaceful reunification. They see of people on Taiwan Island as their compatriots. And if you watch the work of the Chinese diplomatic corps around the world, anytime there is a catastrophe uh, that happens to people who are citizens of Taiwan Island, the Chinese government, the PRC government, is the first country that steps in and rescues and saves and takes care of them. For example, the evacuation of Uh, people of Taiwan Island from, uh, you know, from the Ukraine was uh, conducted completely by the PRC. And so uh, there are no belligerent designs or kinetic designs. It's the U.S. which would like to provoke some kind of kinetic response, which it would then use to bandwagon and criticize China and use as, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, a reason for war, uh, a case, of spell I against China. But Beijing is biding its time uh, and it has time on its side. Uh, Taiwan Island is a small island. Uh, It is completely dependent on the mainland for the majority of its goods and supplies and trade. Uh, And over the long term, if it comes to its senses without the kind of constant manipulation of the DPP and the United States, uh, then I think uh, you know clear heads will prevail, and I think there will be uh, you know a peaceful reunification uh, to the benefit of the entire population, which is what uh, the current population they want uh, the status quo at the very least.
1: I also think this China realizes that their economy and their military um, ability is growing. Mean, you know technologically, meanwhile. Um, many countries are passing the U.S. in technology, particularly military technology, and the U.S. economy is spiraling, Head, you know, heading for a major fall along with its Western, um, I use this word guardedly, allies, because people don't normally attack their allies. So I think China realizes the U.S. is in a rush, saying, come on, please, please hurry up and do this so we can, whatever the case may be, whether it's war or they want to, you know, just use it for sanctions like Ukraine. They realize that the U.S. is in a rush, and they're just not going to Bite the hook. You think. Your thoughts?
4: Um, yes, I think so. I think the U.S. is baiting the hook as forcefully as it can with the Taiwan Policy Act, with all the provocative actions and gestures. It really is trying to set up a kind of a Ukraine-type trap where uh, you know it's irresistible. Uh, you know, you, you have to respond to the provocation. But I think that China is more measured. I think they have a strategy beyond strategy, which is to keep their balance and to continue to do their thing. And we know that the the, the rush of the United States to provoke something and to constantly exaggerate, lie and uh, threat in uh, to do threat inflation, you know, is a sign of panicking and desperation. China's economy is growing in leaps and bounds, but more than that, its tech capacity is growing. And more than that, its educational skills, its patenting, its innovation, its uh, domination of the scientific field. For example, uh, China has surpassed the United States as the number one destination for scientists to live and work in internationally. All of these things point in one direction, which is that China is on the ascendancy. The U.S. is circling the drain in many, many uh, arenas, especially in education. Uh, And this is just more sign of desperation.
0: We have just about a little more than a minute. Pakistan leader... Shahbaz Sharif to make first visit to China next week. And this on the heels of what we discussed yesterday, Vietnam's Communist Party chief to be first foreign leader to visit China after 20th uh, Congress. A lot of folks are, are making their way to China.
4: Yes, they are. And they have been, and they will continue to do that. And Pakistan is an old ally of China. It's one of China's oldest allies. When uh, Kissinger went to China. He had to go through Pakistan because there were no direct flights, but China and Pakistan had direct flights all the time. And so, yes, Pakistan is coming back into the fold. I think there will be positive and uh, increasing you know, developments from that, as, as, as well as with Vietnam, as well as with ASEAN. Uh, the countries of A- Asia are seeing uh, the writing on the wall. Remains to see if the West and Europe is is also equally
0: uh, attentive. And again, just twenty seconds. But these meetings and conversations seem to be centered more around economies than they do militaries. And the United States just doesn't seem to understand that. We got fifteen seconds.
4: You're absolutely correct. And at the end of the day, uh, the economic dimension uh, will uh, you know will will be the deciding factor, as you know somebody said. You know. It's the economy, stupid.
0: K.J. No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
4: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon.
1: Thank you, Wilmer.
0: There's a great piece in Consortium News entitled Russia's Dirty Bomb Scare. Russia appears to be legitimately concerned about the possibility of Ukraine building and using a dirty bomb, so much that it has taken the unprecedented step of reaching out to multiple senior Western defense authorities. For insight into this and what are the implications of this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties. He was in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm in Iraq, overseeing the disarmament of WMDs. And he's the author of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. You write, Russia is not only concerned about the immediate impact of Ukraine detonating such a a motto in terms of the harm that would be done to people and the environment, but also about the potential for such an event to be used by Ukraine's Western allies to directly intervene militarily in the ongoing conflict, similar to what occurred in Syria. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter.
5: Well, basically, I'm I'm just parroting the uh, the sentiments expressed by Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of uh, Russia, in explaining why Russia is, you know, undertaking the extraordinary steps of of convening an emergency security council uh, sessions to discuss this, uh, for the defense minister to be reaching out to his counterparts in the West. Um, you know, a line of communication that's normally reserved for, you know, de, uh, you know, decompartmentalized not de deconfliction, de- de- um, and you know, people were saying, oh, this is a, you know, the Russians, it's disinformation, it's propaganda, and it's not. I mean, I think the world is coming to a consensus that it was a false alarm, but that doesn't mean that the intelligence didn't exist. It doesn't mean that the Russians had no right to be concerned, and it doesn't mean that maybe by the Russians intervening the way they did, um, signals were sent for the Ukrainians to stand down. Russia had every reason to be concerned. Uh, the, the, the rhetoric coming out of Kiev is irresponsible. Uh, you have the Ukrainian president asking NATO to carry out a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia. Um, you, you have them accusing Russia of being prepared to launch a false flag uh, nuclear attack. Uh, and then you have the history of France, the United Kingdom, the United States, using similar false flag tactics in Syria to justify their initiation of an airstrike against the Syrian government. So, no, the Russians had every right to be concerned and to speak out the way they did.
1: Scott, speaking of Syria, here's what I think also, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, who would be behind that? The UK, the US, Poland. Here's the other thing. I also think, you know, again, in Syria, what happened? Obama said the red line would be weapons of mass destruction. Well, what do you know? Days later, there's a false flag. A year later, Donald Trump says, well, I think it's time to leave Syria. What do you know? Another false flag. Here's the other thing that has to be of great concern. Let's say the U.S. or whatever wouldn't do it. Not saying that they wouldn't. If they say, well, you know, if there were a fill in the blank, X happened in this instance, weapons of mass destruction of some kind, then we would have to strike Russia or do whatever. Well, you got the Nazis in Ukraine knowing that their days are numbered, one, basically. They're saying, well, I think they just gave us the key to the city. All we got to do is come up with some weapons of mass destruction style act and voila, it happens. So it doesn't have to be an outside entity. It could be the extremists in the desperate extremists in Ukraine that would be cooking up a, a scheme like this, Scott?
5: So I, I agree 100 percent. First of all, I uh, here, here's my, my assessment. One, I don't think there's anybody in the West that would support this. Um, a dirty bomb is something that uh, is, is unthinkable. Uh, the the uh, Creating a false flag that could result in nuclear conflict is moving in the wrong direction. So I'm not somebody who's up here saying, oh, America was behind this. the British are giving them the support, et cetera, et cetera. I also don't believe that Zelensky would authorize this. He may be desperate and he may be prone to statements of irrationality, but he has to know that this would backfire, that this would be the end of Ukraine, that nobody would support it because a dirty bomb leaves a signature People like me or people smarter than me uh, who know how to do forensic investigations who would be called in automatically would quickly determine the source of the radiation. It would be Ukrainian. And that that's it. What I do believe happened is, again, I believe the Russians did receive intelligence. And as an old intelligence officer, I have to ask myself, Okay, well, what are the likely sources that Russia could be monitoring? One, I think there's human intelligence. I do believe there was a conversation uh, in the presidency of Ukraine, where um ideas were bantered around about how could we get the West to intervene on our behalf and somebody articulating exactly what you did said, "Hey, they've given us the the template. all we have to do is convince them that Russia has used a nuclear weapon, and then they'll intervene and I think maybe it explodes a little bit. And I think the Russians intercepted some phone calls where Ukrainians were talking about, you know, how could we go about doing this? And they talked about, you know, what institutions could be brought in, what technologies could be brought to bear, who would produce it, et cetera. Um, And I think the Russians gathered all this information and said, we would be idiots if we didn't act on this, if we didn't assume that this is indeed going to happen. And that's why they made the phone calls. But at the end of the day, I don't believe Zelensky authorized this because uh, to, to believe that, I'd have to think that the man is truly suicidal, and I don't. I think he's desperate. I think his back's against the wall. I think he's looking for you know, solutions to the you know, unsolvable problems that face him, but I don't believe that he would actually authorize the deliberate radiological poisoning of Ukraine. He's a Ukrainian. He knows the history of Chernobyl. He knows what happened. And I just can't imagine any circumstance where he would say, yeah, I want my name associated with that.
0: RT has a piece, exposure of dirty bomb plans caused panic in Kiev. Many signs show Ukraine is winding down its program amid Moscow's revelations, according to a senior diplomat. Your thoughts on on that perspective?
5: You know, Again, uh, a plan is a plan is a plan. I, I don't know the intelligence. I mean, diplomats, um, I know how they work. Uh, they they often, often operate on rumors, secondhand conversation, overheard snippets. Sometimes they have access to sensitive intelligence. Um, and sometimes it's wishful thinking. You know, Russia was accused of ginning up, um, you know, crying wolf. Uh, that's the, the accusations come from the West. So it only makes sense that Russia constructs a counter-narrative. I don't think Russia wants to give away sources and methods. I don't think Russia wants to say, no, we intercepted this phone call. We have this human source because you want to rely on those again. You don't want to admit that you're listening to this phone call. They'll never make a phone call on that again. You don't want to say I have a human source. They'll track it down. So what they do is they, they respond by a diplomat who alludes to having information that suggests the exact opposite of what the West is accusing of. It's a standard diplomatic practice, a standard diplomatic game.
1: Um, an interesting article, Chinese scholar, West may publicly deny d- d- dirty bomb threat, but it is surely concerned, and that makes sense to me, Scott. Because if, as some of the things that we have posited here are are, are true, if you're in the West, if you're in the Pentagon, on and on, particularly if you're in anywhere near Eastern Europe, Western Europe, you have to look at this and say this would destroy us. If this got out, it would make it impossible for us to continue to support Ukraine. It turns Russia into the um, the victim here, and any I could go on and on, the possibility of radiation, you know, on and on and on. You have to, though they're saying, oh, we don't believe this, it's all Russian lies, there has to be a tremendous amount of concern in the inner circles of the Western um, power elites. Your thoughts?
5: 100%. First of all, when you receive a phone call from the Russian Minister of Defense laying this out, you take it seriously. I can guarantee you every one of his counterparts. Uh, even though they oppose what Russia is doing in Ukraine, took that phone call seriously. They turned to their intelligence services and said, is there anything to this? They turned to their diplomats and said, find out what's going on. And, you know, here's here's another possibility. That diplomat who said that Ukrainians were really, really concerned that, you know, when the you know, when the story came out. Okay, let's imagine you're Ukrainian president. And you've shut this thing down, but you don't want to tell anybody you even considered it. You just want to, you know, you want to pretend it never happened. And now you're getting phone calls from your allies who are saying, what the heck is going on? Are you guys doing this? Man, that would generate a lot of concern. You know, even putting a denial out, you got to say, why are they asking this question? Um, No, we're not doing that. But now they're concerned. Is the West believing this? Is the West pulling back? Russia did the right thing in bringing this to the attention of the the, at the level they did, because phone calls were made and Ukraine has been put on notice. Whether they were going to do something like this or not, they're being put on notice that there are red lines, that the West can only take so much. And if Ukraine goes too far, then you'll lose support.
0: What are your thoughts in in terms of uh, Russia calling up additional forces? And we were talking about 10 days ago that, you know, given a, a two-week span, that, that there was going to be an incredible escalation on behalf of Russia, and that this tide was really going to become more intense in turn. Where are you now as we get closer to that, uh, to that time, time frame?
5: I think it's 100%. Look, the Russian defenses are solidified. They're operating in accordance with doctrine, and they're repelling everything the Ukrainians throw at them. Uh, meanwhile, not only are the Russian is getting stronger, they are accumulating more and more offensive power. And they have 70 to 80,000 Russian troops in Belarus, threatening Kiev, threatening Western Ukraine right now. Just their presence alone has to cause, uh, give the Ukrainians you know, cause for nightmares. Uh, they're building up hundreds of thousands of troops, in, in addition, in the Kherson region and in the Don region. Um, You know, these troops eventually are going to go on the offensive. And when they do, Ukraine's not going to have too much to stop them. So, you know, and and, and even the Western media, the Wall Street Journal, I believe, published a story or, you know, one of the main newspapers that talked about the Ukrainian concern come winter, that they said, you know, (laughs) right now when we hide from the Russians, uh, we have leaves on the trees and we're able to camouflage ourselves. He said, come wintertime, there ain't no leaves, and every time we walk, we leave footprints that point exactly to where we're hunkered down, and the Russians are just going to blow us up. We're all going to die this winter, and that's the truth. They're all going to die this winter.
1: Scott, I did want to ask you about uh, we got about two minutes left. They're saying they're going to send—we're uh, hearing NATO say we're we're sending— um, anti-aircraft, uh, you know, machinery there, and the, they're having a lot of tr- trouble with these mini drones blowing them up. We've got about two minutes. Your thoughts on what's going on with that?
5: First of all, the anti-aircraft defenses they want to send, one's a, a German one, the other one's uh, an American-Norwegian, um, you know, collaboration, uh, are not compatible with the existing air defense system that's in place with Ukraine. So, you know, you're going to be appending something onto something they can't coordinate. So already you've got inefficiencies built in. Dude, these missiles, because they're made in the West, are extraordinarily expensive. If I take if I'm the Ukrainians or the Russians and I launch fifty, thirty thousand dollar drones and I force Ukraine to expend fifty uh one point five million dollar missiles, uh that's that's a ratio I can I, I can live with that forever. And eventually they're gonna run out of missiles before I run out of drones. Ukrainian airspace will never be secure. The Russians will always find a a way to penetrate it and, um, you know, strike the targets that, in the Russian opinion, need to be struck.
0: Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. New UK premier assures Zelensky of continued British support for Kiev. Rishi Sunak said he hoped he and Ukrainian president would soon see each other. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Sputnik news analyst, Wyatt Reed. As always, Wyatt, welcome back. Thank you so
3: much, Garland and Wilmer.
0: Before we get to the UK premier story, I know you have thoughts regarding House Progressive's retract letter to Biden calling for talks with Russia, and uh, Representative Jayapal blames the release of the letter on her staff. We've talked about it uh, earlier today. Your thoughts, Wyatt Reed. Absolutely.
3: Well, this Letter that you're referencing here is uh, something you know incredible. first of all, it's uh, incredibly milk toast. I'm not sure how much you guys got into it, but uh, it was not a terribly aggressive letter. It certainly didn't say anything about you know we should reconsider supporting the Kiev regime. There was nothing in there mentioned in fact, it took great pains to emphasize that all of the Letter signatories were uh, fully in support of the uh, ongoing military weapons shipments that have been sent uh, over $40 billion paid for by U.S. taxpayers at this point. Uh, all of the letter signatories, I should say, had voted in favor of uh, really ramping up escalations with Russia by providing them with. Uh, complicated weapon systems like the HIMARS missiles, these missiles that are, are used all across uh, eastern uh, parts of the front line that now have been used to strike into Russian territory, including Belgorod. Um, so, you know, when we talk about th- this letter, first of all, uh, I just want to emphasize that um, none of the signatories, their, their so- so-called support for Ukraine was never in doubt but now we have this really kind of pathetic uh backtracking with uh, Pramila Jayapal basically saying that um at this point uh you, you know I'll, I'll I'll pull up the specific language here um she said that uh that no no um I'm sorry guys you're yeah, going to have to I can't find this letter else and um sorry Dimitri and da, 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 da. yeah. Um so uh this new statement that was issued by Representative Pramila Jayapal, who is the head of the so-called Congressional Progressive Caucus, said uh, that they hereby withdraw this recent letter to the White House regarding Ukraine. They said the latter the letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting so uh, first of all throwing your staff under the bus basically blaming uh, their own people for having released this letter a number of questions raised by that and a number of questions raised by the fact that the letter was apparently drafted several months ago but then they didn't issue it for some reason I'd love to get some clarification on the reasons why as well um, but then they went on to say that the proximity of these statements created the Unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic, and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces. Dun, dun, dun. Um, they said that our message is being conflated by some is being equivalent to the recent statement by Republican leader McCarthy threatening an end to aid in Ukraine if Republicans take over. So obviously, um, you know, it pretty much speaks for itself. And there were a number of uh, statements released by, uh, I would argue, more uh, principled representatives, including the man who's widely described as like the most right wing member of Congress. That's Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky. Uh, he wrote today that if 30 well-established members of Congress aren't permitted to issue a tactfully worded call for diplomatic resolution to war, how much latitude do you think they have to vote their conscience on consequential legislation? This retraction gives a glimpse into the real Washington. He went on to say that if 30 members together, feeling safety in their numbers, were compelled by forces in D.C. to take down their words, imagine the pressure that any one alone is under. Um, And he noted that this call for diplomacy, before it was retracted, this ex-call for diplomacy, is something that is popular with the American people. Uh, Recent polls have showed that there's a 57% approval for negotiations to end the war, even if it means compromising with Russia. And uh, close to 60% said that the U.S. has a leading role to play in these negotiations, which is obviously true. Um, The Ukrainian regime is not able to negotiate without the backing of its main sponsors, uh, real puppet masters, effectively, in April when Zelensky and Putin were on the verge of sitting down for peace talks. Uh, a a article was published in Ukrainian media saying that Boris Johnson flew into Kiev and and basically put the kibosh on that. Uh, He said that Ukraine may be ready for negotiations, but the UK is not. So, you know, the real impediment to negotiations was always the West. And apparently, judging from this letter, um, that will continue to be the case going forward.
1: Now, Wyatt, my understanding is their excuse is this letter was written back in June, correct? Well, they
3: don't specify exactly when, but uh, I would say, yeah, sometime around June or July, that seems to be the,
1: the assumption. Let me read a a sentence from this letter that was written back in June or July. We are under no illusions regarding the difficulties involved in engaging Russia given its outrageous and illegal invasions of Ukraine, listen to this, and its decision to make additional illegal annexations of Ukrainian territory. Now, wait a minute, Russia did not annex any parts of Ukrainian territory until the end of September. So how did they write a letter back in June and July that somehow knew that months later that Russia was going to annex parts of Ukraine? Unless in fact they're just lying. When I look at that, I'd say your excuse doesn't align with what you say in the letter. What say you, Wyatt? I'd say your explanation is
3: much more convincing to theirs. I mean so many of the parts of this letter just really don't add up. They don't square with what's happening. It really strikes me as a pretty weak excuse for folding. I would assume that happened. I would assume they received a number of calls and visits from certain three-letter agencies that uh, that told them basically, you know, more or less, you know, this is not acceptable. You're not allowed to do this. Could have been Mama Bear Pelosi as well. Had another little chit-chat with AOC. And company. And, you know, it's impossible to say what all took place behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, yeah, it really is hard to square what's in this letter with um, basically the way that it was written. And, uh, you know, I'm not convinced,
0: for one. So what does this say to you uh, about the two-party system? What does this say to you about the stereotype of Democrats being doves and Republicans being hawks. And what does this say to you about the peace movement in the United States?
3: I don't really know where the peace movement is, what it is, who it is. At this point, most of the people who I associated with the peace movement, I've been pretty silent regarding the biggest transfer of weapons in modern U.S. history to uh, another country. Um, I don't know where they are. They basically kind of disappeared. It's it's almost like all, all the momentum in the anti-war movement is coming right now from what is traditionally referred to as the right wing. Um, so people like you know Massey, uh, Paul Gosar, these these are these are the new the sort of right wing populists are the only people who are willing to say, hey, wait a minute, uh, this seems a little weird. Why are we? Out here, funding this this totally undemocratic regime in Kiev, while millions of Americans are struggling, millions of Americans are suffering, there's uh, you know we had we had so many babies that couldn't even get access to formula earlier on in this year, and none of this seems to be you know if you if you listen to what is traditionally referred to as the left, you'd have no idea that any of this is happening. You'd believe that this is a battle between good and evil, freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism, and most of the people who who campaigned for much of their careers on nominally anti-war sentiment have just been missing in action so far. Um, It's, you know, it's reminiscent in some ways to the situation in the UK in that the so-called left has been completely co-opted by Figures like Keir Starmer and the right wing, even but among the right wing, there is no pushback in the U.K. as far as I can tell. Back when Jeremy Corbyn was smeared and, and slandered and libeled as being an anti-Semite in order to basically sabotage his campaign, we know that there were so-called deep state forces at work. Um, CIA Director Mike Pompeo was recorded telling a room full of uh, Zionist leaders that he would, quote, push back against Jeremy Corbyn. Um, he said that it could be that Mr. Corbyn manages to run the gauntlet and get elected. It's possible. Uh, you should know we won't wait for him to do those things. to begin to push back, he was referring to uh, taking actions to support Palestine, I believe. He said it's too risky and too important and too hard once it's already happened. So, you know, all of this signals to me that there is a real crackdown going on uh, among the high levels of the government in the U.S. and in the U.K., and that anybody who steps out of line will be silenced um, and will be threatened and they will likely fold or they'll be
1: pushed out. You know, and as you know, you're over across the pond right now in the U.K., when we look at it, we see people who are becoming the leaders of the U.K., but the one thing they're not having is a general election, that these things, these decisions are being made within the party. And now the new premier, Rishi, Rishi Sunak, or as Biden called him the other day, Rashe Sanuk, um, and Boris Johnson are both pushing, no matter what, we got to keep supporting Ukraine. Your thoughts?
3: Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm just across the channel in Paris currently, but there are plenty of Brits to be found, and I can't find a whole lot of optimism among them about, about uh, quote-unquote, Rashid Sunak. Uh, uh, you know, this, this new prime minister, uh, he's kind of, kind of a meet-the-new-boss, same-as-the-old-boss type of situation, I think. He's a lot like Liz Truss, uh, except much more polished, polished, much less incompetent. Um, But there's a huge continuity here in terms of him keeping Mm -hmm. on Ben Wallace as the prime minister and, uh, or sorry, as the defense minister. And, um, you know, you hear these optimistic statements uh, from Zelensky, basically, he's thrilled that he's in office. Uh, President Putin, according to his press secretary, did not congratulate Sunak on his election as prime minister, because they, they consider the U.K. to be an unfriendly country for Russia at this point. Um, so I don't think anything's changed in terms of uh, foreign policy. remains to be seen in terms of domestic policy, although uh, I don't think too many working-class Brits are terribly optimistic about that direction.
0: Wyatt Reed, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. Stay safe, and we look forward to uh, having you back. Thanks, guys. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled "Western Paternalism in Africa Reaches Its Limits." Decades of failed policy, including U.S. and French counterterrorism programs, have some African leaders looking for alternatives. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled "The Counterrevolution of 1836." Texas Slavery Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So viral footage of recent pro-coup soldiers waving Russian flags in the face of cheering crowds provoked real concern with major publications warning about a growing, quote unquote, Russian influence in West and Central Africa. This followed recent statements from Secretary of State Blinken on "quote countering Russian influence" end quote on the uh, continent and the Countering malign Russian Activities in Africa Act, which has already passed the House. Dr. Horn, it 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 would be laughable if it weren't so serious. This seems to me as though Blinken and 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 Biden and the rest are reading their own press clippings about american exceptionalism and manifest destiny and all this other foolishness because all from all african leaders know is american intervention colonialism oppression and for other countries such as china and russia to step in and working to provide assistance to them with a lot less uh, ties and conditions, and 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 other things, what else are these leaders supposed to do? That's
6: a fair point. Not only reading their own press clippings, but other metaphors come to mind: eating their own dog food, drinking their own Kool Aid. Uh, that is to say,
0: D- getting high off their own supply.
6: Oh, I forgot that one. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I think that part of the problem is, the. let's be charitable, the short historical memory in the, amongst the leaders of the North Atlantic countries, apparently uh, they do not recall the African slave trade, despite the fact that there are about 44 or 45 million people in the United States today who connect to that inglorious, lamentable period. Uh, perhaps they forgot the fact that Uh, Up until Nelson Mandela was elected in 1994, the U.S. administrations were thick as thieves with their counterparts in Apartheid, Pretoria. Uh, Perhaps they've forgotten the history of particular countries. Uh, For example, let's talk about French colonialism uh, for a moment. Uh, Perhaps uh, Paris has forgotten what Madagascar has not forgotten. That is to say, in 1947, there were tens of thousands of people in that nation off the southeast coast of Africa uh, who were mowed down by French colonial vampires, and so this is what is th- this what you see today? In the article in which you read, from which you've read, is the inevitable outgrowth, the inevitable outcome of these centuries and decades of exploitation and gross depredations visited upon Africa. And I think that what's increasing the hysteria in the North Atlantic camp is that this moving away of African nations uh, from the North Atlantic camp is taking place at the same time when the North Atlantic countries are very alarmed about their own precipitous decline. I'm speaking of the deindustrialization of Western Europe, which is driven by this Ukraine escapade, which has led to an increase in energy prices and which has led many factories in the manufacturing giant that has been Germany, uh, looking for warmer, figuratively climbs including in the United States, but also in Asia. And then there's the rise of China, which we should all be paying attention to because there has been a lot of loose talk lately about war with China. And what's so alarming about this loose talk is that I detect uh, anti-Beijing sentiment in virtually every sector of the U.S. body politic. Not only does it unite Democrats and Republicans, but I detect it in intellectual circles. I detect it in left circles. I detect it in black American circles. So given this hysteria, it's not uh, surprising that these North Atlantic countries are concerned that the continent- which allowed the North Atlantic countries to soar to number one in the world, speaking of Africa, uh, that with Africa moving away and with China rising,
7: uh,
6: it's unsurprising that they now
1: begin to feel that mortality awaits. Dr. Horn, uh, a couple of uh, just I'm going to just read the headlines from four different articles. I'm just going to read the headlines. Demonstrators in Burkina Faso protest France and ECOWAS while waving Russian flags. Perspective. Why are Haitian protesters waving Russian flags? Another one. Why Nigerian protesters want French army out and wave Russian flags. Last one. Why are protesters in Ethiopia and Mali waving Russian flags? All different outlets. And I see the same story over and over. And I'm thinking that in a way, I think these people maybe look at this and they see this colonial bully that nobody would ever fight back or push back. I think they see Russia almost like kind of a hero fighting back that bully, and some kind of hope that maybe this bully will be tamed, so they can have an, an opportunity at um, some kind of independence or solidarity. I mean, excuse me, or, or, or uh, you know, independence or sovereignty. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn?
6: Well, I think what unites those headlines is the point that you can look high and low on the African continent, but it would be difficult, if not impossible, to find a former Russian colony Uh, with regard to this hemisphere, with regard to the Americas. uh, Ditto. Of course, you can point to Alaska, but Russia moved out of Alaska in 1867. But I think that once again, those headlines are reflective of a much wider and deeper phenomenon. Uh, That is to say that uh, instinctively, African countries are looking looking for a counterweight to the hegemony and domination of the North Atlantic countries. And they know that historically, it was Moscow that supported anti-apartheid fighters in South Africa and anti-colonial fighters and Angola and Mozambique and amongst uh, other countries. And even before 1917, even before the advent of the Soviet Union, as I've mentioned on this program more than once, and it's worthy of reflection and repetition, uh, that in the 1890s, it was Russia that armed uh, Abyssinia, Ethiopia to the teeth, which allowed it to resist an Italian invasion. Now, uh, there was a confluence of interests between certain African countries and Russia, That is to say, both had a mutual foe in Western Europe. And so it was mutually beneficial for them to come together. And what we need to reflect on today is if that is still the case. And if that is still the case, it helps to shed light on those uh, very uh, striking headlines you just recited.
0: I want to switch gears and uh, we'll we'll go back to this piece regarding uh, Chad. But I want to be sure I get your take on House progressives retract letter to Biden calling for talks with Russia. Progressive Democrats in the House have retracted their letter after facing backlash, suggesting the idea of pursuing diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine. The Congressional Progressive Caucus hereby withdraws its recent letter to the White House regarding Ukraine, according to. Uh, Pramila Jayapal, the letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting as chair of the caucus. I accept responsibility for this. Well, the letter was dated the 24th of October and uh, today is the 26th of October. The letter was signed by all names listed and I wanted to get your take on this because I know this is the Progressive Caucus, not the Congressional Black Caucus. But I think the, the criticism of that, in, of that organization would be the same. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn?
6: Well, certainly I think we should all pile on the Progressive Caucus for this weak-knee display of, on the one hand, trying to be hawkish, on the other hand, uh, trying to be dovish, trying to run with the hounds and uh, run run with the hares and hunt with the hounds. But I think we also need to have a deeper dive. As as I've suggested, uh, part of the problem with the Democratic Party coalition is that the labor movement has yet to shake off uh, Cold War nostrils, and so it tends to be a pro-war during the best of times. The black community has yet to recover From the Compromise of the 1950s, which allowed anti-Jim Crow concessions in return for throwing overboard people like Paul Robeson, who had a critique, an anti-imperialist critique of U.S. foreign policy, Uh, as noted, uh, you have in the intellectual sector of the United States, you have a pro-war intellectual sector uh, of the left, of left intellectuals, and they may even be more dominant than the anti-war. Uh, intellectuals on the left. And then if you look at capital, uh, for example, finance capital, which has been a major bulwark of support for the Democratic Party, I'm thinking of the types like George Soros, uh, for example, the Hungarian-American multi-billionaire. Now, given the fact that as a result of these so-called sanctions against Russia, the United States uh, has basically seized about $300 billion in Russian assets. And Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, uh, has been talking lately uh, that these assets are not uh, subject to freeze. They're about to be seized. And then there's this uh, sort of loose talk about how it's going to be applied to uh, Ukrainian reconstructions, uh, allegedly, purportedly. But the finance capital mavens on Wall Street are licking their lips and salivating at the prospect of getting hold of that 300 billion dollars. And so uh, these are the ultimate uh, puppet masters. These are the ones who call the tune and then the politicians do the dance. And so uh, I'm not asking for sympathy towards the Congressional Progressive Caucus. They deserve none. But certainly uh, we need an explanation because Absent an explanation, we won't find a way to dig ourselves out of this deep hole in which we find ourselves.
1: You know, Doctor Horn. One of the things, and you know, I had to immediately pull out my when 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 the Progressive Caucus came out and they gave their reasoning. You know, they said, "Oh, it was released accidentally by staff or something." It was actually written back in June. So I said, "Let me take out my investigator magnifying glass and look at the and compare their statement." In their statement, they said. Russia annexed some extra lands in, from Ukraine. But if it was written in June, Russia hadn't annexed those yet. <laughs> so their excuse that it was written in June doesn't, doesn't uh, align with the facts in the letter, which makes a claim about something that didn't happen in September. I, I, maybe. I, I mean, that's not important. I don't know. But your thoughts? Well. Once again, I think we should use this in, as a lesson, as I'm sure uh,
6: Dr. Leon would agree, a lesson of Political Science 101, uh, which is basically that these politicians, bless their hearts, are, are basically uh, front men and front women, uh, that they're basically the carnival barker uh, helping to attract the marks into the tent so the marks can be fleeced. And so the men with pot bellies and handlebar mustaches and walk away with all the loot. And so this is the ultimate lesson of this fiasco, this debacle uh, with Congressional Black Caucus, excuse me, oh, Freudian slip there, Congressional Progressive Caucus, although we should mention in all fairness that the Black Caucus is a significant a component of the Progressive <laughs> Caucus. And I don't think that we'll be able to escape uh, these kinds of catastrophes unless and until we understand more deeply how they occur and then begin to try to do something about it.
0: Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Orinoco Tribune reports the time for revolution has come. Uprisings in Haiti to continue until Prime Minister Henri leaves. Yesterday, former Senator of Haiti and leader of the Sons of Dessalines party, Moïse Jean-Charles, warned that the mobilizations could continue until the resignation of unelected Prime Minister Ariel Henri. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's a, a Associate Professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report, Dr. Jamima Pierre. And she's joining us from Senegal. Dr. Pierre, as always, welcome back.
7: Thanks so much for having me. Greetings from Dakar.
0: So, former senator of Haiti, Jean Charles, called for protests in front of the minister's residences and stated that Haitians do not need the international community to hold elections. The former presidential candidate also condemned the actions of the police against the protesters. Dr. Pierre, when I look at photos of what's taking place on the ground and when I listen to narratives such as these... This looks eerily reminiscent to the Iranian revolution in that the people took to the streets and would not uh, would no longer abide by or adhere to the Shah's dictates. Now, the Iranian revolution was took place without a shot being fired. I don't think that that's going to be the case in Haiti. Your thoughts?
7: Oh, no, there's that's not. And, And, you know, when people like my mother... (laughs) <laughs> who's a very, you know, conservative in terms of being a Christian woman, sent all these patriotic videos, you know, um saying that we're going to take up arms and, and 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 protect our country. That tells you where people are in terms of foreign intervention. And so like I said before, I think the last time I was here, I, you know, people don't want foreign troops with guns pointing at them. And and I think Moise, he's he's basically Picking up on this from the people. And he's basically saying um, that if they were to, it would, it's not going to be an easy walk in the park if they think that they can send some foreign troops into Haiti.
0: And l- let me add one more thing quickly, Garland. It's interesting, Dr. Pierre, that you mentioned your mother, because I think it was Franz Fanon in Wretched of the Earth that talked about what happens in a patriarchal society when women pick up arms and take to the fight. I think Fanon said that's an enemy you cannot defeat.
7: That's for sure. When you have the Haitian aunties on the WhatsApp, you know, sending videos, that tells you everything you need to know about people's feelings. And and it, it is true. And I think young men, young women, older women, um, you know, people know they don't want foreigners um, in, in their country. And, 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 you know, the way that the U.S. is trying to do this through this non-UN force, which would mean um, mostly Caribbean troops and, God forbid, Dominican troops, um, this is really a, a recipe for disaster. And I think Moise is really tapping into the, f- the, the feeling in the country right now
1: you yeah, you know um and and just to remind people you can go to blackallianceforpeace.com the black alliance for peace is is opposing um a uh, haitian intervention by the us they're doing a lot of work on it so go to blackalliance.peacefor.com uh, there's a lot uh, dot .com there's a lot more information going on there you know another article and i think this is so important the name grabbed me who is this Haiti, that's appealing for intervention. I love that name and I love this article because it brings out the point, how can you say that some imperialist imperialist U.S. puppets are Haiti? It's the U.S. saying to the U.S., oh, will you intervene, and the U.S. talking to itself saying, sure, why not, as the Haitian people are in the streets saying, we will not tolerate it. I thought that was a great argument. I mean, article, your thoughts, Dr. Pierre.
7: Yes, and I think that's one of the things that's important for people to remember that, you know, uh, Luis Almagro, which is the, or- the 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 Secretary General of the or- Organization of American States, tweeted after meeting with Ayo Oumi, went to Twitter and tweeted on October six saying that they called Haiti to request support <laughs> for the international com- from the international community, and sure enough, his puppet Only the next day sent a request for international for an international force, which tells you that we know who runs haiti it's not it's not you know it's it's not the haitian government and that then that's what we've all been saying how could you have how can you say haiti has requested international help when the 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 haiti that you're you're talking about is this unelected and imposed on character um, that's working as a puppet for the U.S. government. And so there's no legitimacy by for from any one of these people um, um, calling for intervention. And I also think it's interesting that they also, the article also mentions the Montana Group. Yeah, so the Montana Group, which had broad support, at least from some key organizations like the Lavalas movement and Moligaf, which is a um, socialist group um, of grassroots young people, they lost that support. Remember, I don't know if you remember, I said this was like bourgeois opposition, because, you know, some of these, some some of these key members of the Montana group were actually um, part of the, you know, the the organization called Democratie Convergence, the CD, which actually uh, for the the coup d'etat against Aristide back in 2004. So some of these key players are back in the Montana group. And even though, They supported a Haitian-led solution. They've allowed themselves to be pulled into the so-called, you know, the U.S.'s new foreign policy, which is the Global Fragilities Act. They've allowed themselves to be pulled into um, this role of being neocolonials, which which meant that all the radical groups have left the Montana group. And so at this point, the Haiti that these people are talking about, the people calling for intervention are the Washington Post, the, the New York Times, you know, everybody but but the average haitian on the street and so i think i thought it was a really brilliant article to say well who is it that which haiti are we talking about here and who are the people
1: dr pierre for our listeners who may not know could you tell them that you know when they hear these terms they hear the montana group they hear the uh i believe the other group that the un put together and they may not know who these groups are just for a reference if you could explain
7: Right, so back in 2021, right around January 2021, when most people said that uh, jo- Mo- Jovenel Moise's term um, was supposed to end February 7, 2021, and he refused to step down with the support of the U.S. And so, a group of uh, a group of people came together, um, a group of organizations and uh, and in the individuals came together to create what they call Haitian-led from Haitian led solutions. And, you know, they put together. So there's the Montana Accord. And I really can't remember because the other two accords have been actually so sidelined that we don't remember um, the names. And then uh, Henri, Henri himself put his his own accord, you know, group together. So there are all these different groups of Haitian um, organizations and individuals working together to come up with the own um, solution. And so the Montana group is called Montana because they met at the Montana Hotel, which is a, a you know, big, hotel in 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 Port-au-Prince and that's why the the group is named that. So these are the groups that came together to have a solution that did not include Ayio Henri that set up the pace for having a transitional government so that we could lead to so that it could lead to elections. The US through Ayio Henri really sidelined most of these groups and the Montana group is the only one that actually is standing because some of its um Some of its um, proponents are, you know, part of the transnational elite and they have access to the U.S. State Department. And so that's what I mean by by these groups that came up with Haitian-led solutions that have been completely sidelined by the U.S.
0: I've asked this question of you before, and I'm going to continue to ask the question because I think it's very important and telling. In terms of the international community and the international community's response to this, I would think that the circumstance in Haiti— uh, presents so many examples of American hypocrisy, American contradictions, uh, um, so many so many elements of what is wrong with U.S. foreign policy that a number of countries that are facing similar tactics uh, or having issues with the United States would publicly and quickly come to Haiti's defense. But I don't hear that. I don't know if it's because it's not being publicized or because it's not happening. Your thoughts.
7: It's not happening. And remember, we talked about my article, the leftist of uh, the leftism of the Americas collapses at, at the door of Haitian sovereignty. Remember that? And so, and, and we see it right. And so all last week you had the Baham, the, 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 Baham, the government in the Bahamas, the, the Jamaican government, Trinidadian, all of them saying that they would be willing to provide troops for a mission to Haiti. That to me is the biggest slap in the face from these black Caribbean countries who call for supporting um, uh, Cuba against the blockade, to call for supporting Venezuela, supporting Nicaragua. They cannot muster a call to to respect and protect the sovereignty of, 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 of Haiti. And, and what they don't want what they don't want to acknowledge is the fact that what happens in Haiti is a practice of what will happen to them. and i and I think you know people don't want to acknowledge that, but it is it's really depressing um to 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 see places like Barbados, Barbuda, um, Antigua and Barbuda who are radical. But then when it comes to Haiti, all that is lost. And so and Haitians see that, too. They see CARICOM stepping up, trying to send military force to to Haiti. And they will remember, you know, the people will remember.
0: Let me just quickly ask why when you mention uh, Barbados and Barbuda, for example, why do you think they're standing back? I know, for example, there's incredible. Uh, there's a there's, there's a whole racist m- motivation as it relates to Haiti and the Dominican Republic. So I can understand why the doctor isn't stepping up. But are there similar issues in those island nations or are there other issues as in just fear of retribution by the United States?
7: Yeah, I think there are two, both of them. I think, you know, if you could only need to know how um, the Bahamas treat Haitian migrants. All okay. of them okay. in the in, in the in the region really um treat Haitian migrants terribly. Um in fact, you know, CARICOM has like free travel among nations except for Haiti, right? And so there's a there's this deep anti-blackness. There's a way that I think Haiti um embarrasses them as being too African and too black. And I think there's that. But then and I also think they've bought into the discourse around Haiti as being this violent um place where you know I was I was tweeting the other day that. How is it that the Mexican government can can be, can put, you know, AMLO can be talking about taking care of the gang violence in Haiti when we think about what gangs do in Mexico. You know, you have cartels, you know, killing police and people are afraid of the Mexican cartels. But then you can talk about Haiti and saying that this is a cause for intervention. So I do think people have bought into the the stereotypical readings of Haiti. But I also think these are neoliberal governments at at the end of the day, and Mm. they're neocolonial governments that do the bidding of the U.S. So it's a combination of things that that end up working, all of it coming together to work against Haiti.
1: You know, I also have some feeling that they kind of feel that the U.S. empire's focus on Haiti is a way that, you know, if the if the U.S. empire only has 100 percent of the focus, if 90 percent of it is on Haiti, then the other 10 percent is only left for them. So in a way, in some way, I always almost feel like they're sacrificing Haiti saying, yeah, let the U.S. empire beat up on them and that'll give us a, some, you know, some clear space for a while. What do you think?
7: Yeah, I mean, I would say that's a generous reading. And, and you know, I, I'd i be willing to consider it. But I also know that CARICOM, for example, did not even have Haiti as a member until the 90s. And that was under P.J. Patterson of, of, of Jamaica, one of the first black presidents of um, prime ministers of Jamaica. And it was P.J. Patterson that actually was the only time the CARICOM went against U.S. policy by criticizing the coup d'etat against Aristide. Um, meanwhile, you have CARICOM now aping US, U.S. discourse around Haiti. And, I, and I'm not sure if if, it's that thing, if they're thinking that way or if there are real true feelings about um, the, the Black Haitians.
0: Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate you giving us time out of your very busy schedule in Dakar, Senegal. And we look forward to having you back.
7: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the critical hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. House progressives retract letter to Biden calling for talks with Russia. Representative Jayapal blamed the release of the letter on her staff. What signals does this send? How concerned should we be? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. The letter was signed by 30 lawmakers and was led by Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. In a statement, she said the letter was drafted several months ago and blamed its release on her staff. The quote, the Congressional Progressive Caucus hereby withdraws its recent letter to the White House regarding Ukraine. The letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was relieved by staff without vetting as chair of the caucus. I accept responsibility for this. To that, I say, Really? Pramila, the letter was signed October 24th, and all names listed had signatures next to them, and staff usually doesn't make mistakes like this. Your thoughts, Ted? This to me sounds more like Nancy Pelosi got in giant balls behind, and that's what brought about the retraction of the letter. Your thoughts, Ted Rawl?
8: I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Well, my first thought is uh, I, I wouldn't want to work
0: for Representative
8: Jayapal. Uh, nothing like being thrown under the bus by your boss who did the thing that she's now blaming on you. Um, the, You know, I mean, it really reveals the extent of militarism in our in Congress and in our society that the mere suggestion that the U S and Ukraine should contemplate or be open to diplomacy in order to resolve the conflict in Ukraine, uh, is, you know, that, the, that, that is going too far. That just talking is something that should not even be considered. Uh, and that nothing short of just, uh, you know, continuing to fight and just continuing warfare is, is the acceptable, uh, stance. I mean, it's, I mean, honestly, the lunatics are running the asylum
1: here. You know, Ted, here's another part of it, too. You know, the the, the there's an argument, and it is that—and I have friends that truly, that truly believe this—progressives can get enough of them in the Democratic Party and turn the party around. There's a progressive element in the party. There's a progressive wing of the party. They'll stand up. They'll speak truth to power. And Ted— Based on what I'm seeing here, there are some people who claim to be progressives in the Democratic Party. Any hope of them speaking truth to power or standing up to the neocons is hopeless. They may every now and then timidly walk in and beg for, you know, any possibility of change. But as soon as they get pushed back, they get slapped down, they're going to walk out with their tail between their legs and their heads hung, and they will do what they are told, Ted.
8: Well, that's that's happened time and time again, you know, to the squad, uh, you know, starting with uh, AOC and the rest, uh, you know, being pressured to vote for Uh, Pelosi as Speaker, you know, even though that's something that, you know, they said they wouldn't do. And that's happened over and over again. You know, they might argue that it's a question of numbers. But look, if they ever got to the point where they were 50 percent of the, uh, you know, the, the Democratic caucus in the House, then, you know, it begs the question, why not just start your own progressive party rather than take over a corporatist party that is so that you know is a completely opposed to everything you believe in i mean this letter was very soft i mean this was not a letter that uh, came out in favor of russia this was you know it was just merely the suggestion that maybe talking isn't a bad thing and if they had to retract that it just shows that you know basically they're completely impotent uh, they're, they're they're completely defanged And, you know, they they can't they're not allowed to uh, to do anything independent.
0: It's also very interesting when you go back to the campaign trail and Joe Biden on the campaign trail saying that he was going to lead with diplomacy and he has done nothing of the sort. And so when the Department of State, which is supposed to be the diplomatic part of the United States government when the Department of uh, State has now morphed into the not the Department of Defense, but the Department of Aggression. You really have to be concerned about who's steering the ship and do they realize that they're about to strike an iceberg?
8: Well, diplomacy hasn't been a major tool in the American arsenal. For a long time, it's been decades, and it's uh, you know it's uh, you have to go back to uh, you know a principled resignation of uh, Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State under Jimmy Carter, uh, who disagreed with him about uh, the Iran hostage uh, rescue, the failed uh, helicopter mission that he wasn't uh, brought in to talk about. You have to go back to the late '70s to to look at state really playing a really important role. And uh, it's it, it's really sad and, and toxic and and extremely dangerous for the world.
1: Yeah. Um, additionally, um, th- it, you know, there's a, a, a number of articles, one of them, media continues to push U.S. officials said claims, even when they are obvious lies. That's on the moon of Alabama. And they go on to a number of things where basically um, such as. The media saying, yes, there was a a um, a meeting between uh, President uh, uh, Putin and, you know, whoever they name one of someone. And then they talk about what was in the meeting, anger. They were uh, there was an angry this and that as though they were in the meeting or they knew someone who was in the meeting and later on the people involved say we don't know what they were talking about there's there's no meeting there's no record of any meeting but it's just well you know if there were a meeting this would work to push the cause of the neocons it's pathetic but they do it so often sadly people believe this crap and it's becoming to be the norm ted
8: yeah you know it's uh <clears throat> it's obviously a uh it's a psychological operation a psy- op. Uh, and it's being and the media is allowing itself repeatedly to be used for this. You know, I, I think there's a lot of things going on here. Mainly, of course, uh, the the media is the lapdog of the state, and they are willing to serve it even when the state kind of uh, screws them over and and makes them look silly and reduces their and undermines their credibility. But also. There's just sort of the, this sort of inherent laziness in the media. There's no one sort of at NBC News or any of these other me, uh, media operations who sort of keeps track of these things and says, you know, um, we were lied to by the you know the the, the the government, and so you know they did this this to us this one time, they did that another time. You know, let, let's put out an edict to all of our reporters to be to double down on checking facts and. Uh, double-checking sources. They just don't do that. And you know, part of it is just you just don't do that because they're addicted to access to the government. Uh, I always used to say a press conference is the one place where news does not occur. If you're a reporter, you should be anywhere but inside a press conference. But that's not how official Washington works.
0: And to that point, the Saker has a piece, Why Ukraine is Always Winning the War. In the United States, media editorial policy has not wavered on one subject this year. Ukraine is always winning the war. From the first week when the Ukraine Air Force and Navy were smashed to last week's smashing of the electrical grid, that is what, quote-unquote, victory looks like in Ukraine. In Ukrainian language, apparently. Your thoughts, Ted
8: yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me of, you know, it reminds us of, of Orwell 1984. We have always been at war with East Asia. We have never been at war with Eurasia. Now it's Ukraine has never lost any part of the war or a single battle. Ukraine has only won. Uh, you know, that is not only not true. It cannot be true because look at the map. <laughs> you know, the war is being fought entirely inside Ukraine. Uh, Russian forces are inside Ukraine. They are fighting in Ukraine. Uh, You know, clearly uh, Russia uh, Russia acquired and uh, controls additional territory. Um, You know, it's war, so things have gone back and forth. But it's, you know, I mean, it's the, the thing that kind of gives me some comfort is that this lie is so completely on its face, impossible to be believed, uh, that, you know, it kind of helps uh, even people who are super busy just really understand how much they're being lied to. They kind of know they're being lied to. And, you know, if if you have to be lied to, it's good to know
7: it.
1: You know, Ted, there was recently some video shown where Dr. Jeffrey Sachs was at this forum and there was the head guy for I think he was the head of uh, the editor or something for the um, New York Times. And Jeffrey, Dr. Sachs started saying since 1945, the most violent country, the country that has exported the most violence is the United States. And before he got that out, the guy from the New York Times said, stop, Jeffrey, stop. No more. Stop. Stop, Jeffrey. Just stop. He was not going. Now, had Jeffrey said Russia has is eating children, had 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 he made the most spurious allegation against Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela, whatever the case, then. Um, the guy from the New York times would have been as quiet as a mouse. So what we have now, this is not a media Ted. This is not a, a a media in any way. What is it Ted? What is it that does what these people do? What do we call it?
8: Well, it's, it's media. It's not news media. Uh, you know, I mean, media is any kind of dissemination. It's a propaganda machine, you know, it's a propaganda mill, Uh, that repeats and regurgitates the same messages that are, um, you know, that are promulgated uh, by the powers that be. And we're supposed to believe it, I guess. I mean, it's not very sophisticated because so little, so much of it sort of falls apart immediately upon hearing it or watching it. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of this bastardized form. It's pseudo news. It's packaged as though it were news, but it's not news.
0: But, Ted, I, I I have to push back on you a little bit on it's falling apart. I, I teach at, at Morgan State, and when I'm t- I am teach comparative politics. And when I'm talking to my kids, man, they and I start giving them the counter-narrative, they look at me like I'm out of my mind. And they ask me, well, where are you getting this? I say, well, I, I talk to Ted Rawl all the time. Don't you all listen to Ted Rawl? <laughs> uh, but, hey, man, they don't – even on the Brittany Griner piece – and I, I, I challenge the thing about her being improperly detained. What do you mean, Dr. Leon, that she's improperly? Uh, so I go into this discussion about sovereignty, and, and then they go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But if you leave them to their own devices, they aren't getting it. Well, your, your students
8: are young, and and therefore they're learning, and you're imparting the knowledge that they need to make oh, but, but really intelligent quickly, really, discerning decisions. Really, but
0: decision. really quickly, they, they tell me. They listen to Fox News. They t- t- they say so we can get balance. They listen to CNN. They listen to MSNBC, and they're reading Western press. Go go ahead. Yeah, and so I, I say that, I, and I, I say that to say they're not just sitting in their rooms listening to music. That that that's my point.
8: Right. No, I understand that, and I and and you know the fact that they're even willing to to you know not be siloed into just Fox or just MSNBC. You know, it speaks well of them, but it's still there are a lot of narratives that are really, uh, you know, completely uniform. For example, Ukraine is always winning the war across, you know, all of those networks, whether they're Democratic or Republican aligned. And so, you know, it's, it's you really have to work hard in this media environment to find the news that, to you know, to find other uh, alternative explanations for current events. And, you know, I think young people hopefully are going to, you know, that that's what college is for, right. Is to learn how Mm -hmm. to think right. Um, And, and they're going to, they're going to get better at that in part because of your class, but, and also your, those of your colleagues.
0: And in fact, I listen to you. Uh, (laughs) Ted Rawl, as always, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Out of prison and leading in polls, Lula nears full political comeback. When former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva emerged from the federal police headquarters in uh, Curitiba on November 8th in 2019, freed after serving more than 19 months on charges of corruption and money laundering, the hundreds of supporters waiting for him erupted in cheers, and the lion of the Latin American left resumed campaigning for the office he held from 2003-2010. to 2010. What does this mean as we look to the runoff election in Brazil? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former Assistant Secretary of Education and Public Service at the Smithsonian Institution and board member at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., James Counts Early. Good afternoon and welcome back to The Critical Hour.
9: Good afternoon, and thank you, Critical Hour, and to the listening, participatory listening audience of the Critical Hour.
0: So, uh, Orinoco Tribune writes, they didn't lock up a man. He declared that day they tried to kill an idea, but an idea can't be destroyed. Looking at where we are now in terms of this runoff in Brazil, what are your thoughts?
9: Well, you know, I have known Lula for maybe 25 years. I actually visited him um, some months before he went into prison, and his statement was that, uh, I am not looking to be protected as an individual because this assault is not about me as an individual personality, notwithstanding his objective leadership in the Workers' Party, but it is an attack on the working class and marginalized populations of Brazil. So I start with the most important factor about the seeming uh, victory at hand uh, with Lula de Silva as the next president of Brazil is the internal alignment. Across classes, including certain elements of the capitalist class and various uh, populist sectors who are fighting against fascism and the preservation of democracy. That's the frontline struggle. The social content of democracy uh, should be understood based on the majority population, uh, which by official census is um, around 53, 54%. Black and mixed race, so it's not a marginalized minority kind of structure it's a transversal issue and where racial and gender dimensions of black and indigenous and white working class people must be manifested in all policies and so that uh, Lula uh, has been able to pull together a cross class section against fascism and in defense of the democracy of brazil that's the first important step. The second step is that uh, Lula as a uh, basic democratic socialist: the content of his ideology and policies uh, from the Workers Party over the previous uh, two times as president of the country uh, is that uh, he is uh, uh, will be leading uh, the largest economy um, in Latin America outside of Mexico, uh, a major player in the BRICS, the South-South relations of Brazil, India, China, Russia. Uh, Argentina is now being discussed as being added to that BRICS South-South relationship, and he will be a major player in, say, like the integration of Latin America and the Caribbean for mutual interests. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that while the United States and Canada are explicitly excluded, uh, most of those countries, 99% of those countries, have bilateral relations with the United States. And then the issue of race and gender. Lula has stated very articulately that the face of poverty in brazil is a woman and it's a black woman so that he in collaboration with social movements uh like the movement for landless people like the movement negro the black movement of various sectors including significant organizations of women like a strong black religious women uh which has a long history in brazil Uh, will play a very important role not only for the preservation of democracy in Brazil, but for the expansion of democracy and the fight against racism and gender equality uh, throughout Latin America and the Caribbean.
1: You know, um, with what's been going on, this political shift that I would argue, you know, towards democratic socialism um, in um, in Latin America, we saw Colombia, which was, you know, a real uh, military base for the U.S. go um, in the other direction. How important Brazil? I believe it's either the fifth or eighth largest nation and most populist in the world. How important is Brazil with the kind of U.S. imperialist project and how does that change the dynamics? Well, the economy of Brazil, you know, Brazil is a huge country, the largest producer of
9: soy in the world, large cattle, uh, and other agricultural products and a country that is not yet, uh, fully, uh, developed in its, and its, and its possibilities. Uh, Brazil will play a weighty role. And I, I should perhaps qualify myself by saying, uh, these are social democratic policies, um, that are more representative and formal terminology of democratic socialist, Uh, but their social democracy policies, as uh, you would find among the squad in the U.S. Congress, uh, notwithstanding the fact that Bernie Sanders is really the explicit democratic socialist. Uh, With regard to uh, Brazil and Colombia, Colombia is the sphere of U.S. imperial influence uh, in South America and across the Caribbean with eight military bases having supported one of the most far right mean, uh, mean uh, ugly uh, kind of uh, fascist in 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 and in and in, 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 in prior presidents um uh, within Colombia and that this new government of Petro and Francia Marquez and Afro Colombian woman representing uh, all of the distinct elements of the Afro Colombian population Raizales, uh Palenqueros, which is a language group uh, and Ordinary or generalized Afro Colombian populations uh, is playing a very important role in Latin American unity. And certainly the election of Lula will be another alignment for Petro, who has called for fully integration of Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, who has called to uh, stop the blockade and taking Cuba off the terrorist list, and who is looking really at the sovereignty and self determination. Uh, within Latin America and the Caribbean uh, as the axis of democratic and material development. So that allied with Lula and other progressive governments uh, in, in Argentina, for example, with the CARICOM governments uh, that are advancing a re- reparatory justice projects for enslaved uh, Africans and the consequences in contemporary moment along with what happened to indigenous populations and those negative consequences in the contemporary moment, which has been embraced by the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, uh, there is a possible great synergy. However, there are some cautionary tales here that we should look at. Uh, Assuming state power through the electoral process is fundamentally important because it is an index of the views and aspirations of millions of ordinary citizens who are activating themselves to say, these are the policies and personalities that we want. But uh, the parliamentary structure within Brazil, uh, Lula will not have a majority. It will probably be frozen. And so there will be an internal struggle as we see the internal struggle in the United States of America, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the social media and and mainstream media orient orient citizens to look at the personalities and the parties they represent uh, as somehow uh, what victory is about. And then we have a frozen, paralyzed, um, dysfunctional, um, congressional, uh, legislative, juridical system. uh, Very reactionary in many instances. So uh, uh, the Lula presidency, if he wins, will certainly encounter uh, those those internal fetters, and so we have to look realistically at the negotiation of policies and power uh, within Brazil, not just at the personalities.
0: Switching from Brazil to Venezuela, 73% of Venezuelans distrust opposition, according to the results of a poll carried out by the Venezuelan pollster Hinterlaces. Uh, 73% of the Venezuelan population would not trust an opposition government to solve the country's current problems. What does this say to you about the American intervention uh, practices, as well as what does this say to you about uh, Maduro and uh, his impact on Venezuela? Well, I I think the broader
9: context of this and uh, and looking at the U.S. uh, and its relationship with the Maduro government, uh, a socialist government in, in, in Venezuela uh, must go back uh, to the uh, late 90s with the emergence of then uh, the late President Hugo Chavez, uh, who brought forth an orientation uh, of a strong independence, sovereignty, and self-determination, and uh, the struggle against neoliberal capitalism, the search for alternatives, and then the search for 21st century uh, socialism. Plural, and he those two were connected, uh, but not some, but but not the same thing. The struggle against neoliberal capital was to find uh, more expansive freedom uh, to protect themselves and their sovereignty and their own self-development against the exploitation of imperial interests in controlling their economy and controlling their media. Uh, not necessarily a transformation from the capitalist system, but the search for 21st century socialism was also connected. Uh, to that, uh, which suggests that uh, uh, um, Chavez understood that it was necessary to build a cross-sector, cross-class patriotism within countries and across countries in the region. This is the orientation that uh, President Maduro inherited, notwithstanding, uh, in my view, uh, many critical mistakes, but the protection of national sovereignty, self-determination, uh, the largest oil reserve in the world. Uh, They've been able to withstand the onslaught of U.S. uh, bipartisan imperial policies designed to overthrow the government, setting up a puppet government under Guaido, who has now failed to bring the opposition together, and the opposition is now turning on Maduro. And of course, we must understand all of these individual national projects in the context of the global integration uh, that we live in. So the, the, the NATO-U.S.-Ukraine war, which is affecting uh, 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 natural resource fossil fuels uh, to Europe, uh, foods, uh, stuff, grains, and the likes across Africa and into, uh, into the, the Western world, uh, is a context in which now the U.S. has had to make a compromise in its ultra-right mm-hmm. policies Talk to the Maduro government about oil, and so it's a very fluid situation there, in which the Maduro government has been able to withstand the onslaught of imperial uh, design to overthrow the Maduro government, really to overthrow the Bolivarian Revolution. It was not just Maduro's personality.
0: Just for clarity, you said the opposition is turning on Maduro. Did you mean that now the opposition is turning on Guaido?
9: Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. The opposition is turning on Guaido. There we go. And then. Guaido. The opposition has uh, sought to have an interface on patriotic issues because uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, in effect,
0: 20 seconds
9: in, in, in embargo against, uh, against Venezuela affects all classes, all ideologies. So there's been a rapprochement of dealing with Maduro, even as the opposition opposes him. But they are rejecting Guaido uh, as their leader. And this is giving the Maduro government much more flexibility uh, to restabilize the country.
0: James Counts Early, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.